So this evening, I want especially to speak to you about freedom from man-made worship. Freedom from man-made worship. My God is very simple this evening. I want to encourage you to worship God in Jesus from the heart. Free from the slavery of man-made rules. The rules that we are all prone to craft for ourselves. Now the word freedom means different things to different people. Right? If a person is in Belmash, right, freedom means Every release from prison. If you could tell him that he's coming early, that would be what freedom would mean to him. If you are a Brexiteer this evening, as you think about the state the country is in, freedom to you is a question of sovereignty, isn't it? And perhaps economic calculation. To you, freedom means leaving the EU and being able to strike our own trade deals I'm sounding like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Strike our own trade deals and make our own laws as we please. That's what freedom uh, probably means to you if you're a Brexiteer. If you are in Venezuela at the moment, right now, freedom means getting rid of Maduro, isn't it? So that you can live free from social and political oppression that's taking place in Venezuela, uh, according to, of course, one side of that debate. But what does freedom mean to us as followers of Jesus? What does it mean to you, for you to be free in Christ? When you think of that word free, as a believer, what comes to your mind? Well, we need to know the answer to this question, actually. It's a very important question, what freedom means to us. Because you may not know this, but you may not have realized, but if you read through Galatians, it becomes immediately obvious that our freedom is the end, actually, of our salvation. It is the goal. It's why Christ has saved us. Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, in chapter 5, verse 13, says this, For you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Why did Jesus die on the cross for us? Why did God send him to come and die for us on the cross? Freedom. Freedom. To set us free. Free from what? We might ask this evening, what has Christ come to set us free from? I think we need a whole, <laughs> a whole series on the freedom Christ brings. In fact, the whole, or the whole scriptures talks about that freedom. But perhaps immediately the obvious things that we usually mention when we speak about the freedom that Christ has brought, we think of the freedom it brings from the power of sin. Sin is the power and Christ frees us from that. Peter writing in First, chapter, first Peter chapter 1 actually talks about that, that we've been purchased not with something like silver or gold, but something priceless, isn't it? A lamb without spot and blemish. Why? So that Christ could redeem us, free us, from the power and penalty of sin. Christ also frees us from the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that very much, that Christ has come. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 talks about Christ freeing us from the power of death, robbing Satan, actually, this power of death. And therefore, Christ also frees us. The other freedom he brings is actually from Satan himself. Christ has come to bind the strong man. We have learned in Mark chapter 
3 we learned that. He, he, or is it chapter 2? It's been a while since we looked at that. Probably chapter 3. And it, it frees us. Uh, it is chapter 3. It, it frees us from the, from the strong man. And of course, Christ delivers us from the greatest thing we need freedom from, which is the eternal punishment of God in hell. Christ comes to free us from hell. We are we were destined for hell, as it were. We were headed there. But Christ, by his work on the cross, of course, because of his prior choosing of us, has freed us from hell. Those are just four areas, right? And I th- I'm sure there are perhaps more as you dig up the word for yourself. So, but when we think about these freedoms... Um, within those four areas, we receive other freedoms as well. And one of the freedoms we receive within those areas is what we are talking about today, which is freedom from man-made worship. Man-made worship. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 7, which Brother Nick read for us. And we are looking at verse 1 to verse 13. And there are just three truths in your outline I just want to share briefly uh, in this rather lengthy passage. The first thing I just want us to observe as we look at this passage is that people want us to worship God by their rules. Their man-made rules. There is this drive in everyone for us to do God, as it were, by their formula. For us to worship God, not according to how the Bible sets it out, but what they think in their wisdom that we should worship. We should worship according to how they want us to worship. Now, one of the ancient roads from Jerusalem uh, to, towards Galilee, it winds through the, the plain of Gennesaret, and it passes the shadow of Mount Abel. And we think perhaps this is one of the likely roads that the religious leaders uh, in verse 1 have taken from their journey from Jerusalem to come to Jesus, who we left where? In Gennesaret. In, at the end of chapter 6. They have come, they've taken that road, and they are here to see Jesus. Let's read verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, we just pause there, by the way. When was the last time we saw the Pharisees? We saw them in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. What were they doing? Well, they were not very happy that Jesus had healed a man with a withered hand. And they decided to burn with the Herodians. And the last time we left them, therefore, they have been plotting the death of Jesus. That's what they've been up to. And they, are, they have come back like this, with an, we might say, an investigative committee. They've made up, Jesus must die. But what they're doing now is collecting more evidence on Jesus. They are building their dodgy dossier, as we might call it, so that they could really indict him before the Romans. Now, you may remember from our previous engagement of the Pharisees that they are a powerful religious group, right? We need to remember that. They were formed after the Maccabean revolt. That would be about 150 years before Christ. We might say they are an extreme back-to-the-Bible sect. I don't think there's any comparison to the Pharisees today, alive today. I just can't think of anyone who would have known the scriptures as well as they did, would have been so obsessed with God in their own way than any. I can't think of any. They are really extreme to the core. And they not only believe in applying the law of Moses to the letter, 
They also follow other traditions from their founders. Now, this is very important. These traditions they follow, sometimes it's called the oral law. So we have the written law in the Torah, the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. They also believe in something called the oral law, these traditions of the elders. You need to get that. The sermon today is about their beliefs in these traditions. It's not about their beliefs in relation to the Torah. It's about these extra things that they have gathered to themselves. Uh, the, the oral law. And they believe in this, so their the, the desire is that people should not only keep the, the, the if you like, the, the, main, the, the 613 commandments, they also believe that people should keep to the letter these traditions they have gathered to themselves. If anyone violates them, well, you are not a proper Jew. You are not a true believer. And the last time we saw the Pharisees, they were really upset with the disciples eating corn on Sabbath. Because that was also one of their traditions they believed shouldn't happen. It's one of the many laws that they had written for themselves. They were not happy. And now they've come to Jerusalem, and what do they see? They've come from Jerusalem, and again, what do they see? They see, well, the disciples eating without washing their hands. Let's read verse 10. They saw that some of his disciples ate with ants that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The literal word there, unrinsed. Should the disciples wash before eating? Of course they should. I mean, it's good hygiene, isn't it? As good hygiene, they should wash. But the Pharisees are not concerned here about hygiene. They are concerned here because this violates their cherished traditions. Let's read on verse 3 to 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash or rinse their hands. Why? Because they hold on to the tradition of the elders. Verse 4. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. That is, wash their hands. And, And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, where you perhaps sit, they like to wash that a little bit. And so when they look at all of these things, you know, this is all part of their tradition. It's all about being pure before God. It's not commanded anywhere in the first five books of the law, but they want to do this because it's from their elders. And they see this, and they are not happy with Jesus. Look at this five. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they see that the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Why are they eating like this without washing their hands? They're, they're not very happy at the disciples. Now, this is puzzling, isn't it, to many of us, right? Who are these elders they're talking about? The traditions of the elders. Who are these guys? And, and, and what makes these, the tradition of these elders a big deal? Why have they all of a sudden decided these traditions are needed, they are necessary? How does that come about? Well, the, the elders, first of all, are the founders of the Pharisees. Really, when they speak of the elders, they mean the founders. But they are also thinking beyond that. They are thinking the leaders, all the leaders of the Israel, all the way back to Moses. 
You see, according to the Pharisees, these traditions that they have are not just some sort of, we sat down, did a church committee, came up with a list of rules, and therefore they'll be permanent for the next 3,000 years or something. No, these traditions, according to them, they believe when God gave the Old Testament laws to Moses at Mount Sinai, he wrote those down, of course, but on top of that, God also gave some verbal instructions to Moses. That's what makes these traditions, if you like, a big deal. They believe Moses had something additionally verbal from God, which he didn't write down. Moses then passed those verbal instructions to Joshua. Joshua passed that on to the elders. Remember the elders, right? You remember we met the elders in Judges? In Judges chapter 2, the elders, that generation that lived after Joshua, uh, that lived with Joshua, he passed, they believed Joshua passed on these things to them. They believed those elders went on to pass these instructions through the judges, all the way through the prophets, right? Kings, and eventually to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees trace their authority back to Moses. Yes, it's not written down, but Moses got a word, and we have it. It's here. And so when we come to John 9, verse 28, what do the, the Pharisees call themselves? They call themselves disciples of Moses. They are followers of Moses. But here's the problem. Jesus is God, and he does not accept this tradition. In fact, he calls it a, a tradition of men. And his proof for that isn't simply saying, I'm God, I don't accept it. No, his proof is that he quotes the prophet Isaiah. All the prophets of you said the scriptures reject this idea. Isaiah is quoted in verse 6 to 8. Let's hear the Lord Jesus respond to them. In fact, from verse 6 all the way, um, it's just the Lord Jesus responding, including the section we'll look at next week. Let's read verse 6 to verse 8. And he said to them, Well... <laughs> Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? I mean, the boldness of our Lord Jesus. He knows they have to kill him, but he's not afraid to call them out. Where did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, These people, is quoting Isaiah, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and ought to the traditions of men. That is the verdict of Isaiah. That is the verdict of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, these are all man-made rules. Now we'll return to, to, his, to his point later, uh, to those words in verse 6 to 8 later. But the key point I just want us to see immediately here is that these people, these Pharisees want followers of Jesus to worship God by man-made rules. That's what is at stake here. This is not saying follow the commandments. There are people who do that, who believe you must follow all the commandments. That's not what it's about. They are saying, forget the commandments. We've got these traditions, and if you don't follow them, you are condemned. And here's the thing. We still face that threat today as followers of Jesus. 
There are people found in churches who are determined to bring you under their thumb. They are bent on making you a slave of their man-made traditions. They are going around with a clipboard. They are not even looking to the Bible. They are saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. Okay? And they are trying to tick you on that. They have a definition of what it means to be a Christian. It has nothing to do with the Bible. I am not talking about people who insist that you obey certain laws or moral laws in order to be saved. Look, those people are lost, right? That's not what I'm talking about. People who say you need to obey things to become a, to, you need to obey the laws for you to be saved by God are lost. Because salvation comes to us only by grace. Those are non-believers, even if they are found in churches. I'm talking about people who profess faith in Jesus and yet insist that you live before Christ in conformity to their variety of Christianity. I am talking about those people we meet who make us feel we are sinning just by raising our hand in worship. I am talking about those people who make us feel we are sinning by simply clapping when we praise God in singing. People who make us feel we're sinners by condemning things that they disagree with based purely on tradition. These people place a higher value on their customs, on their backgrounds, how they were raised, and how they have done church for many years, rather than on the plain teaching of the Word of God. They are seeking to build a fence of man-made rules around the very things that God has already made clear on what worship should be like. It should be worship of the heart. And we see many examples of this, don't we? How people such as these behave. We see that the Bible, for example, forbids drunkenness. It does. The Bible forbids drunkenness. But nowhere does it require total abstinence. Even though total abstinence, I think, is wise. It's a wise thing to abstain from alcohol. But the Bible doesn't demand total abstinence. But there are people in our churches who are interested in what you add over supper or over lunch. What sort of drink did you have? Where did you buy it from? They are very intrigued by these things, even though the Bible permits you drinking in moderation. They are, might be called legalists, is sometimes a term used. I wouldn't use that because we're talking about something specific here, which is bowing down to man-made rules. So there are people like that. Let's take dressing, for example. The Bible encourages modesty in dress. Both men and women are to be careful not to flaunt their sexuality in how they dress. You are not to come in church trying to seduce others or be unaware that the way you're dressed may cause a brother to stumble, even if it's not your intention or sister to stumble. So we need to be careful how we dress, isn't it? But no one has a right to condemn others for wearing colorful clothing or coming to church rugged. No one has a right to condemn anyone for an airstyle they have. 
No one has the right to even look down on them. It is a sin. But we see it in churches, don't we? Let's take, for example, the issue of lust. The Bible condemns lust in all its forms, isn't it? All its forms. Lust is a sin. But some people condemn as unholy everything from watching television to watching movies. And even, I found out recently, mixed swimming. So if you turn up at Crook uh, Lock and have a mixed swimming of men and women, some people condemn that. Oh, worldly, they would say. Now, there may be some wisdom in being careful about such things. We must be careful what we watch. We must be careful how we use our time. But the Bible is clear. We must be careful not to impose man-made rules on other believers who have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. And you know what I've seen? What I've seen is that people who are always like these Pharisees are always looking around to see who's stepping out of the line. Church is terrible because there are always people trying to see who's misbehaving, who isn't. Who is not staying in line with how the tradition of the church has been for millennia. People like these are always out there nitpicking, judging, nitpicking, judging. Ah, you drink alcohol. Very interesting. Mm, I'm not sure about that, they'll say. You attend movies. Mm. Did I see you go to Sainsbury's on Sundays? I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Ah, <laughs> you read the Good News Bible. Not the authorized or the excellent standard version we use. Are you sure you believe everything we believe in? We find out a sister reads the Good News Bible. We are probably thinking, mm-hmm. conversion, I think we need to do a second church interview just to make sure that they are truly believers. Because if they were truly converted, you see, by our standard, they would have long realized that they should have a passion for reading real good translation. Because they want to know more of Jesus. And so we impose these layers, you see, on them. Wow, we say. We see a lady, perhaps, or a man spotting a tattoo. We found out perhaps she got the tattoo before she was saved, but that's not sufficient for us, isn't it? In any case, it doesn't matter. We are thinking to ourselves, hmm, she needs to cover up that tattoo because, you know, why hasn't he done something about that tattoo? You know, he's, he's a believer now, that kind of thing. And you find that sometimes in churches, people being judged by external appearances. Something the scriptures forbids us to do. Or they might say, wouldn't they? Sometimes you have somebody, you visit a church or somebody, or you're talking to someone, somebody might come to you and say, look, I noticed that you don't always close your eyes before you pray. <laughs> What's up with that? Are you sure that's how a Christian ought to be here? Or they'll ask you a question. By the way, do you tithe before, before tax or after tax? Is it net or gross? You see, this is all man-made rules. 
If the Bible just tells you to tax, to, tells you to, to, to give God money, just give God money. If it's a tithing, you believe in that. That's a different sermon, of course. But if you believe that, but the Bible never talks about how the taxation system works in relation to whatever obligations we may feel we need to give God. But people do that. They impose these mad-made rules on us. And we can go on forever, isn't it? Because to be honest, the tradition of our elders is, is something that we all have. I would say our elders are the reformed forefathers, the Puritans. So often we look to the authority of Spurgeon. A sermon isn't good, actually, unless it's got a few Puritan quotes in it. We've got to bow to the elders. And of course, we often ask people, what are you reading? You're reading Chuck's window or something like that. I've never heard of that guy. We want a name that we are familiar with, something that is comfortable to us. Never mind that we haven't spent time to actually study what's in the book. The point is that perhaps this person is coming from a group which we may not feel comfortable with. We are relating to people based on man-made rules. And Jesus says here, this is how people are like. And we as believers must not allow ourselves to be governed by man-made rules. We must watch out that we don't become victims. And we must be careful we are not perpetrators of this evil. It is evil. Why? Because of the second truth we learn here. Worship by man-made rules is not true worship. It is not true worship. Notice how Jesus begins his answer there in verse 6 to verse 8. Uh, it begins, as I said, with that blunt statement, you hypocrites, because you are hypocrites. Why? Because you do not know Isaiah 29, verse 13. That's where that comes from. Let's read that again. It says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. Jesus is saying, your worship of God by these man-made rules, trying to relate to God by these man-made rules, is not true worship. And you know why it's not true worship? Jesus here gives us four reasons why it's not true worship. First of all, worshiping God like this is all just wrong. It's just wrong. Why is it wrong? Because God wants our hearts not our rules. God wants your heart, not your rule following. Look at verse 6 again. These people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They follow the rules, but there's no heart in it. Those who relate to God by following rules honor God with the rules, but their hearts are not there. And many of us are like the Pharisees, isn't it? We think God cares only about me keeping the rules, so what actually goes on in my heart does not matter. And I would, so we come to church on Sunday morning and we say to ourselves, well, you know what, it doesn't matter if I was arguing with my wife on the way here, I was being nasty to her, the important thing is I'm in church Sunday morning. I have fulfilled my obligation. And of course that's worshipping God by the rules rather than the hearts. Why are we like this? I think we are like this because people treat us, or everyone we know treats us like that. Everyone in society, in life, treats us based on their rules. 
have to quote Shamima Begum again, isn't it? I have to refer to her again, don't I? Shamima Begum was British until she violated our rules. Our employers are only willing to keep us in our jobs to the extent that we keep their rules. If we don't, we lose our jobs. Even your wife, even though she loves you, she's not even going to love you to the extent that you stay within our rules. Trust me, she has some. And you can test and test and test, and there will come a time at which you say, No, frankly, you violated enough, I can't cope. Out of the door, as one of the songs say, as it were. You see, these are people, everyone in society treats us like that. And because that's how life is, we, 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 we think God is the same, right? We transfer that attitude to God. We think God, since God has rules, by the way, already, right? In the Old Testament and the New, in fact, the Old Bible in some sense is, a, is full of rules about how we're to live. It instructs us in that. The law is the entire Bible already, right? And since God has the law, already he's got his own rules, Right? We, we, we think God wants us to relate to him based on the, the law, right? And we want, in some sense, we don't want to lose God. So what we do is this. Look, God has his own law here. So what we do is, and we think we need to relate to God based on following the law. So what we do is we draw a fence around it, just in case we trespass. So we come up with these man-made rules actually to help us not fall Far of God's rules. But you see, what we miss is this. Why, why did God give us the law? Why did God give us the law? The law was given to point us to God. If you're going to know anything about what the law exists for in the scriptures, is that it is not an end in itself. The law was meant just to help us actually worship God from the heart. It was meant to do this by, first of all, exposing our hearts, and then as with repentance and finding grace in Christ to worship him God. We're going to have a sermon down the line on the relationship between law and grace. But you need to get this point. That we are all prone to drawing a fence around God's law. We, we tend to worship him by our rules rather than our hearts. And, and that's not true worship. The second reason this is not true worship is that Creating rules to help us worship God creates worship of God that is based on what we do for God rather than what He does for us. All true worship only occurs by divine fiat. You are not worshiping God if it's not Him engineering it. Because you don't know how to worship. Paul says, we don't even know how to pray. It is the Spirit Himself. It is Him who helps us to pray. And so when we start making rules, we are turning worship into a human effort rather than through something done by His Holy Spirit, through His grace and power, as it were. The third reason here we see is that man-made rules are, of course, what? Man-made, right? They are of human origin. So any form of worship that derives authority from man is really worship of man. If the way you worship is all about what Spurgeon thought of it, you're not really worshiping God, you're worshiping Spurgeon. If you must only worship according to Calvin, you're really bowing down at Calvin's temple. All worship, which is built on man-made rules, is man-made, is human idolatry. 
Well, idolatry, period. Finally, the fourth reason here, we, it is, is, it is uh, worship, worshiping man by man-made rules is not true worship, is that man-made rules corrupt true worship. It, by turning what should be a blessing, worship of God, into a burden that we can't stand anymore. Look at this, 10 to verse 13. This is what the point Jesus is making, verse 10 to 13. He says this. In verse 9, by the way, he said, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. I just want to quickly explain there that the Hebrew word korban here literally means offering. And it appears 80 times in the Old Testament. In its purest sense, it simply means an unblemished offering. It is an offering that shows our love and devotion to God. It reflects God's command to offer sacrifice as an outer reflection of that inner reality of our hearts. But here's the problem. The Pharisees... For the Pharisees, this term coven actually means cordoning off, right? Essentially, what's going on here is very interesting, right? You are allowed to give God the house, right? And you can go to the temple and say, look, I want to give God my house, right? And I want to dedicate it to God. Uh, whenever the proceeds come from this house, I want you know, people to profit. So you declare it devoted to God. But it might be that the temple doesn't need it immediately, or you may decide that you want to use your formally hand it over in a couple of years' time or whatever reason. For whatever reason, it's still in your use. It's just been declared Coban. It's devoted to God, right? Many people do this, perhaps I can imagine, to gain some blessings from God. You know, they, you remember how Samuel was dedicated by his mother, right? To God, before the prophet Eli. Yeah? That, that's Corban. You, you take your child, you dedicate him, etc. So people do that with assets. Now, the moment they are dedicated to the temple that they'll be used for temple things, what the Pharisees have done is that even though a person is still in possession of the asset, suppose his mother becomes unwell, right? The Pharisee says, no, no, no. You still have it, but it's technically ours, right? You can't resell it now. And or you can't draw resources from it to help your mother who's sick. It's cordoned off. It's almost like a curse now to touch it. That's what they're doing. They're doing this coban thing. They've just adulterated the whole process. And Jesus is saying, no, that is foolish. That is in contravention to what God himself has ordained. This whole coban formula you've come up with actually is not even biblical. It's, a, it's just a tradition you've come up with because of the way you are applying it. And therefore, you know, what should happen in that case is that God is perfectly happy, has commanded you to take care of your mother and father. So even though you dedicated it, you should really be able to draw resources on it to look after your family. But the Pharisees don't do that because, you see, they, they live by man-made rules. 
And therefore, all that matters to them is following these rules. They are, the result is that they are, they, are, they are causing havoc in families. They have robbed people of their freedom that they have. And Jesus is saying, this is the danger of following man-made rules. It is false worship because actually, these people now do not have even more, they, are, they, they even have less love for God than they had. Because they are thinking God is robbing them of good health now. When actually God allows the freedom for them to be helped in this way. This is the danger of man-made rules. It robs us of freedom. It turns worship and devotion to God into a burden. And this is a danger all of us face, isn't it? As believers, it can steal our joy and squeeze intimacy out of our relationship with God in Christ. And we must be careful of this. We must ask ourselves, is there a way in which we are living as a body here in the church in which we are condemning others? Are we treating others with the love of Christ or are we all about rules and traditions and things we have done in the past and seeking to maintain that rather than looking to him? Because friends, you see, the danger of being like that, being driven by man-made rules, is that it can even make new believers doubt their salvation. So let me just give you an example. Suppose we have a person who is newly converted and they walk into this church, right? God has saved them. They saw on TV that people clap their hands. They, they go into... I'm just using this as an example. I'm not suggesting that clapping uh, as it were every day. But all I'm saying is they turn to Psalms and they see that God is commanding people to clap their hands. And one day they walk into church, they start... We have a song. I don't know. I can't think of a song. We use hymns, so obviously this is going to be very difficult. But suppose there was a song where it was actually possible to clap. And they started clapping for whatever reason. Or they raised their hands. And then they have all these people looking at them funny. Right? And then immediately after the fellowship service, the people start asking them tough questions. Well, I think a new believer would start questioning their salvation. They would say, well, perhaps I've misunderstood. I've misread the Bible. And perhaps I'm not a true believer. We are beginning not only to rob them of the freedom they have, we are beginning to heap condemnation on them. Because they are not taking our man-made rules. And so all of us this evening have to ask ourselves, are you as a believer in this church encouraging biblical freedom or are you stifling it? That's the question. As a pastor, am I encouraging people to look to the Bible to guide them or am I just interested in self-guarding church rules even, I should say? Because let's face it, our church rules are our rules. They are not inspired. They need to be checked continuously. I want to be a pastor that looks at the church rules and sees they don't fit in the scripture and have the courage and boldness to call myself a hypocrite and repent so that God can forge us into a biblical, into, into a biblical church if that were to be the case. I think the church rules we have are biblical, but my, you get my point. That, and this has to be the case with you. You have to ask yourself, are you promoting fear and rejection, or are you promoting people to discover their joy in Christ? We need to take this issue seriously, and the reason we need to take it seriously is a final point I just briefly want to make. Thank you for your patience, but just a final point I want to make here we need to take this seriously is because of the point we made at the beginning. 
Jesus has come to free us from man-made rules. So how can we possibly use these man-made rules to, to shackle those people who Jesus has come to free? And we see that in these verses, don't we? The freedom that Jesus brings. In this passage, just two things I just wanted to briefly point out of, that shows that what Jesus is up to. First, Jesus is God freely bringing us into a relationship with him. We shouldn't miss verse, what verse 1 and verse 2 says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come to Jerusalem, they saw that some of what? I love this. His disciples. Not some of the disciples, some of his disciples. Eight with hands that were undefiled. Right there we are reminded that Jesus is all about bringing people into relationship with him. These are his children. Jesus has come to bring human beings into a heart-to-heart relationship with him. And he's starting with these 12 men. He's doing that with them. They are following him. And this is how life with God should be. It's following him. Following him. We are disciples. We're not rule followers. We are following our master. Him, seeking to worship Him with our hearts. The second thing we see here is just how Jesus protects them. He shows that Jesus values that relationship He has. So Jesus is God protecting our heart relationship with God. He is a shepherd who fends off the wolves that try and steal our freedom. Notice here that as soon as the Pharisees try and make disciples of Jesus live by their rules. Look how strong our, our Lord responds. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And I found this so challenging because it reminded me that there were two models here of leadership. There are the Pharisees who are leaders, all about him stifling freedom, stifling freedom. And we have our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's all about giving up power. Giving up, ensuring that the disciples enjoy their freedom. I think there's an application for me which I won't uh, detain you further. I think I, I, my prayer is that every single person who holds any form of leadership in this church will be like the Lord Jesus. They are all about freedom, giving for people to enjoy the freedom they have in Jesus. That's what we want leaders to be, isn't it? We don't want leaders who steal freedom from people. We want leaders who recognize the biblical freedom that they have in Jesus. And that's what we should pray for as we pray for elders, as we pray for more Sunday school teachers, as we pray for leadership everywhere in, in the life of the church. And, and, and this selfless leadership of Jesus culminates where? On the cross, isn't it? Because the selflessness of Jesus giving up his power is on the cross. There on the cross, Jesus takes on the full burden of the law. On our behalf. The Lord says every sinner must die. Isn't it? That's what the Lord says. But Jesus goes to the cross and dies for us. He fulfills all the law of God. And he gives us a new relationship. I just want to leave you this evening by saying, look, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are trusting in him, you are no longer a slave. You are free in Christ. You are not bound by this man-made rules. You are fully accepted in Christ. And it is to that freedom you should look to, isn't it? And nothing else. Jesus is saying to you this evening, don't try and create rules to please me. I have already accepted you. And now accept me.